Hello, everyone, and thanks for listening to Cassus Belly, the podcast about history, geography, international politics, and more. So before we dive into our first subject, I'd like to talk about what exactly the Cassus Belly podcast is. Like it says in the intro and tagline, Cassus Belly is about history, geography, international politics, and more. But what does that really mean, you might ask? Well, for my first series, my intent is to create an in-depth analysis of the various conflicts taking place in the world right now, or, at a minimum, get an idea of who wants what and how they might go about getting that. In each case, I'll attempt to outline the conflict thus far, provide background information on the various sides involved, and then offer my best prediction, or perhaps recommendation, for how the conflict should unfold. I'll do my best to keep my personal opinions out of the narrative, but, by the very nature of making a prediction, my opinions and attitudes will necessarily have to be involved. I hope that I will demonstrate that they are educated, or at least informed opinions, but ultimately you, dear listener, will have to be the judge of that. In the end, though, don't we all want to know what will happen next? What's the point of going through this whole exercise if not to figure out what the future holds? This gets me to my ultimate point which is what the inspiration for this podcast was. For a long time, I've toyed with the idea of somehow creating an ongoing project aimed at making a more accurate map of the world. In so many places, the lines drawn on the globe don't actually reflect in any way who really controls that piece of land. Everyone knows that Syria, Somalia, and Afghanistan hardly amount to full-fledged states. So it's deceiving when you see an outline on a map with the name Syria in it, because no such state really exists anymore. At best, you have Syrian government-controlled areas, or something like that. One major goal of this podcast is to explore these spots on the map and where the lines don't reflect reality. In the first series, I suppose we'll call it, I intend to cover the South China Sea disputes, Russian claims in the Ukraine, and the war in Mesopotamia encompassing most of Iraq and Syria. This is subject to change, though, and some topics may have to be tabled while I substitute in others. Though I'd also like to explore history, geography, geopolitics, and various other subjects through the lens of these various topics. So without any further delay, let's begin our first episode, Chinese Imperialism, the South China Sea. Since the 2012 Scarborough Shoal incident, China has been on a course of increasing belligerence and self-assertion in the waters lying just to its south. In 2013, they began developing in earnest every rock and reef they could find in the sea despite protests from neighbors, especially the Philippines, in accordance with their Nine Dash Line initiative. Shortly thereafter, the Filipino government lodged a complaint with the International Tribunal in The Hague, arguing that China's actions were illegal and in clear violation of the United Nations Convention of the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS. Since then, the People's Liberation Army Navy, or PLA Navy, has grown even more audacious. They have expanded artificial islands, built airstrips, and even interdicted foreign vessels, including American destroyers sailing near their claims. What is China's endgame in all of this? What do they wish to accomplish? Is all of this simply a gambit to see what they can get away with, or is it part of a larger plan to increase Chinese authority and expand their sphere of influence in order to challenge America for local hegemony? It's not entirely clear when the Chinese government expressly decided to annex the South China Sea, but it is readily apparent that it is continuing a decades-old policy of belligerent self-assertion. Though only publishing its position paper, 
claiming indisputable sovereignty over the South China Sea, in December of 2014, it has been engaged in aggressive diplomacy since consolidating the mainland. The earliest incident occurred when the Chinese began constructing an artificial harbor and an airfield on Woody Island in 1974. During this rash of island grabbing, they also claimed several small islands and evicted a Vietnamese garrison. This in turn led to the Vietnamese establishing their first outposts in the Spratly Islands and laid the seeds for much of today's conflict. The next major incident would occur in 1988, when the Chinese sank three Vietnamese vessels after clashes over the Chinese occupation of Fiery Cross Reef in the Spratlys. 74 Vietnamese sailors died in the engagement, and it prompted the Vietnamese to occupy several more islands themselves in order to monitor Chinese activity in the surrounding waters. The Chinese would again engage in armed maritime conflict in 1996, during the Mischief Reef incident. Over the course of an hour and a half, Chinese naval vessels would duel with a Filipino gunboat over the segment of the Spratly Archipelago claimed by the Philippines. The next 15 years would remain relatively quiet, aside from various low-profile fishing confrontations, but that would change in 2012 with the Scarborough Shoal incident. On April 8th of that year, the Philippines embarked a naval vessel to interdict Chinese fishermen. Though the conflict resulted in a two-month standoff, there was no violent engagement. Instead, the incident signaled the beginning of a new era of increasing tensions in the region. In order to get the Philippines to back down, the United States guaranteed military assistance in the event of a larger conflict. It is within this context that the events of the next several years and the Filipino appeal to The Hague must be understood. So in 2013, the Philippines filed an official UN arbitration of China's claims in the South China Sea based on the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, or UNCLOS. Established in 1982 as a means for nations to objectively carve out areas of maritime influence, UNCLOS has been the benchmark against which events in China's peripheral waters have been measured. Though UNCLOS does not carry the weight of law in most of the world, particularly in China or the United States, it is still regarded as a rule of thumb by most nations and is observed by the U.S. even if it has not been ratified. The key aspect of UNCLOS relevant to the South China Sea dispute is the article regarding Exclusive Economic Zones, or EEZs. According to Article 57 of the United Nations Convention on the Law of the Sea, breadth of the Exclusive Economic Zone, the Exclusive Economic Zone shall not extend beyond 200 nautical miles from the baselines from which the breadth of the territorial sea is measured. An EEZ is not the same as territorial waters, though, which are agreed to extend 12 nautical miles into the ocean. Within territorial waters, nations can claim full sovereignty and exercise their power as such. Within the EEZ, nations have economic rights and can develop the seabed as they see fit, but domestic authority does not extend there. China seems to disagree with this aspect of maritime law, however, and generally treats its EEZ as territorial waters. This is why claiming islands is so important to the Chinese. If they can claim enough islands within the sea, they can effectively extend their EEZ to cover the entire area. A key aspect to keep in mind, however, is that artificial islands and islands that are not visible during high tide do not count. Additionally, rocks visible at high tide do generate territorial waters, however, only inhabited islands generate EEZs, further complicating matters. This is another aspect of maritime law that China often conveniently forgets. Even so, they certainly understand the importance of having international legitimacy, hence the effort to claim full-fledged islands. 
At the same time, they also appear to be seeking de facto control and thus have engaged tirelessly in constructing artificial islands from reefs and rocks just below the surface. But why is China, or anyone else for that matter, bothering to fight over the 1.4 million square mile body of water? What interests and resources drive the governments and heads of state of seven different countries to contest the claims of the others? Well, for one, it is one of the most active shipping lanes in the world, with $5 billion in trade passing through annually. Secondly, it contains massive reserves of both crude oil and natural gas, both of which are of vital importance to the energy security of every nation lining the sea. Lastly, the sea is home to sprawling fisheries utilized by all in the region. The potential economic gains controlling even a marginally greater area within the sea are enormous, especially to emerging regional powers like Vietnam and the Philippines. Having set the stage for the Philippines' request for arbitration, we can now discuss events since then during which China has stepped up island construction and military assertiveness. By May of 2015, Chinese construction and militarization efforts were well underway. During that year, a two-mile-long airstrip had been constructed on Fiery Cross Reef, making it by far the largest island in the archipelago. An additional airfield in the Spratlys was confirmed by IHS Janes on Mischief Reef. All of this work had prompted the Association of Southeast Asian Nations to make a rare bold statement declaring that China's actions had undermined peace, security, and stability in the region. This very much points to China's loss of diplomatic initiative. Since the Scarborough Shoal incident, and especially since the lodging of the complaint in The Hague, China's diplomats made attempts at maintaining some sort of legitimacy by essentially saying that they were simply countering American aggressiveness and shifting the legal argument toward a more pedantic tack. Both of these strategies were benefited in some sense by American Freedom of Navigation Operations, or FONOPS, which we will cover shortly. Unfortunately for China's embassies, these overtures seem to have fallen on deaf ears throughout much of the world, no doubt because of their naked self-interest. This leads me to discussing China's motivations, incentives, and general point of view. One mistake I want to avoid is one that I feel Americans make frequently. Generally, it seems we tend to view the actions of other nations, peoples, and organizations in terms of whether or not they benefit the United States or hurt the United States. We often fail to consider that other nations have their own interests, motivations, and justifications in mind. This is certainly true in the South China Sea. So what is China's point of view here, and how do they justify their actions internally? Well, for one, China does seem to earnestly perceive itself as the rightful hegemonic power in the region. In their position paper and their diplomatic overtures, they tend to characterize the waters as being part of China's ancestral provenance. One could even compare China's Nine Dash Line initiative as being a corollary to America's Monroe Doctrine. As to how legitimate that comparison is, that's another argument. It does go to show that China is in some sense taking its lead from the United States, though. They are not the first nation to aggressively assert hegemony in a region, or a hemisphere for that matter. And who's to say that they're wrong? Their economy dwarfs any in Southeast Asia, their military is strengthening, and they have a vested interest in the events that take place in their backyard. I would argue the problem isn't so much in their potential justification for claims, but rather in their conduct. For all America's missteps, it can fairly convincingly make the argument that they are a benevolent hegemon. Free trade is patronized, democracy is promoted, and rule of law respected within America's sphere of influence whereas China seems to be more interested in pushing their own agenda despite the will of its neighbors. It must be said that for a brief period in 2015, the Chinese did make overtures of peace and cooperation to Vietnam and the Philippines. 
but these appear to have just been in an effort to buy time and temporary goodwill rather than a genuine turning of a new leaf. If China were acting in good faith, or at least not out of naked self-interest, perhaps the world would be more receptive to their claims. Another aspect of China's MO is security. Most Westerners take for granted America's large and impressive global security network. The U.S. has an enormous forward deployment presence around the globe, including in what China certainly considers its near abroad. According to the DoD, the U.S. maintains about 54,000 troops in Japan and about 28,000 in the Republic of Korea, including the 2nd Infantry Division. This is no small commitment. The U.S. is essentially on a permanent war footing in the Western Pacific. China has been aware and likely self-conscious of this fact for decades. With their newfound economic prosperity, the Chinese have been on a course of military modernization and assertion in order to counterbalance the lopsided security arrangement in the region. China has been particularly aggressive in the East China Sea, where they have claimed the Senkaku, or as they would call them, Diaoyu Islands. There, they have contested Japan for control of the barren, rocky islands and established an air defense identification zone intended to be a sort of no-fly zone in which the Chinese maintain strict control under threat of force from anti-aircraft emplacements, it allows the Chinese to create a sort of buffer zone around their mainland. The United States doesn't really so much as blink an eye at this. Of course, the Chinese don't really acknowledge that their wayward stepchild, North Korea, is responsible for America's heightened security posture in the region. If they were to take greater responsibility for North Korean belligerents, perhaps the United States wouldn't have to keep an entire infantry division on their doorstep. That is a discussion for another podcast. Likely sensing that they have made all the ground they can in the east, they have turned their attention to the south. Here, there is much more to be gained in far less formal or stable security arrangements. In the east, the United States has formal security agreements with both Iraq and Japan. In the south, however, no such agreements exist. Yes, the U.S. has close ties with the Philippines and a mutual defense treaty dating back to 1951 not to mention the 13-year campaign against the Islamic separatists in Mindanao. Aside from the few hundred servicemen involved in supporting the 1st Special Forces Group, there has been little presence since the closure of the Subic Naval Base in 1992. It is only as of 2016 that the two countries have agreed to bring U.S. troops back into the archipelago. Though the recent election of Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte has added yet another wrinkle to this already complex issue. The boisterous, crass, volatile thug of a man has recently been questioning American-Filipino military cooperation and has made overtures to China. Up until his election, the Philippines have been the most vocal supporters of American involvement in the region, but he seems to believe his nation's interests lie along another path. Aside from potential cooperation between the U.S. and Philippines, though, there is very little in the way of unity or commitment. Just about the only thing uniting the various interested parties is Chinese aggression. If it were not for that, the Philippines, Vietnam, and Indonesia would likely beat each other's throats. This gives the Chinese room to expand and maneuver. Or at least it did. They certainly made the most of the time it took for one of the neighboring countries to make enough of a stink to get the U.S. more actively involved, improving positions on at least 10 islands. Obviously today, the U.S. is paying much closer attention, and at least the Philippines is making public overtures to the U.S. for support. Even Vietnam has reached out to the U.S., though much more quietly. President Barack Obama recently paid a state visit to the country, which centered around economic ties and the contentious Trans-Pacific Partnership. Though to view the TPP, as it is commonly called, as a purely economic agreement is naive. The agreement would certainly expand American influence and soft power throughout the Pacific. We will get to that later. Interestingly, Obama also lifted the ban on arms sales to Vietnam, which will give them access to advanced American munitions and delivery systems. 
For now, however, we remain focused on China, and the fact that Xi Jinping visited Hanoi only six months prior to Obama as a sort of attempt to extend an olive branch toward the country. It doesn't seem to have done much good, considering that almost nothing has changed since then. It's also doubtful that the Vietnamese expected much from the meeting, but simply agreed to it because it would be uncouth to decline a visit from such a powerful neighbor. The Vietnamese even allowed small protest rallies to be staged during the state visit, something that would have surely been clamped down on if the Vietnamese were at all interested in what the Chinese delegation had to say. At this point, I'd like to shift gears a little bit and talk about the man who has been driving Chinese foreign policy and domestic policy for the last four years, President Xi Jinping. Though what takes place behind the curtain in Beijing is little like asking what exactly the Wizard of Oz was up to, we can still glean more or less what Chinese leadership wants to accomplish. Xi Jinping, like many modern Communist Party leaders, is a princeling. His father was one of Mao's lieutenants. Rising to power in the southern province of Fujian, he made his name as a relatively upright worker bee in the often mildly corrupt world of Chinese regional administration. From there, he proceeded to higher party offices, including party secretary, the Politburo, and the vice presidency of Hu Jintao. Finally, on November 15, 2012, he was elected slash appointed to the office of president of the People's Republic of China, as well as party chairman and commander-in-chief of the armed forces. In addition to these positions, which were held by his predecessors, he also assumed several other positions placing him in charge of reform and anti-corruption, as well as the National Security Commission. Perched atop the enormous steamroller that is Chinese party politics, Xi found himself in a position to gather more power around himself than any Chinese leader since Deng Xiaoping, or perhaps even Mao himself. Initiating an enormous anti-corruption campaign, he was able to not only ingratiate himself with the average person, but also to remove inconvenient subordinates and regional administrators. Xi's unprecedented control and influence even extends to the army, which has always enjoyed a degree of autonomy within the government. Through his anti-graph campaign, he was able to arrest members of even the highest ranks. Though probably driven by some genuine sense of altruism, Xi's anti-corruption campaign has without a doubt benefited him personally and allowed him to gather yet more power around himself. Yet he is not all-powerful, and China is not a monolith. In March 2016, two essays were published on an official state media criticizing Xi's outsized power and influence. He is accused of eschewing collective leadership, centralizing too much power, and worst of all, nurturing a personality cult. But how does this tie back into the South China Sea dispute? Certainly China was already on a course of aggressive diplomacy to say the least, but Xi seems to have ramped up those efforts. The Scarborough Shoal incident took place seven months before he assumed party and state control, but it was under his leadership that intensive island building began. Though the conflict in the sea has certainly always been about asserting Chinese control and influence over their near abroad, it seems Xi has increased Chinese interest in the matter substantially. Yes, there is the direct and obvious stakes at play, but there are also domestic considerations for the Chinese leader. Demonstrating a willingness to stand up to the West will always play well with certain segments of the Chinese population and the Communist Party leadership. In addition, beefing up the PLA, referring to the entirety of the armed services, not just the army, and using it aggressively can't hurt his standing among the generals. Victories abroad, even hollow ones, probably help him ease some of the hard feelings he has engendered through his anti-graph campaign. The South China Sea developments also go hand-in-hand -hand with Xi's goal of upgrading the Chinese armed forces to a more modern and forward footing. In fact, as of August 2016, it has become clear that the Chinese are constructing their first domestically constructed aircraft carrier. This belies significantly increasing Chinese capability in the years to come. Unfortunately for Xi, though, 
The South China Sea disputes have not gone China's way of late. The Hague ruled against China, and Vietnam's influence grows greater, especially in regards to the U.S., and the American Navy continues to exercise freedom of navigation patrols. In light of this, I'd like to now address the American foreign policy response thus far and what the incoming administration should do to counter ongoing Chinese ambitions. By and large, the U.S. response to Chinese actions has been lacking. Between 2011 and 2015, the U.S. Navy conducted no FONOPS, the primary vehicle through which the U.S. exercises its will in the conflict. Aside from that, and flyovers by military aircraft, or moving a carrier strike group through the area, there is little else the U.S. hard power direct action arsenal can do. There are, however, various soft power indirect action alternatives. By rotating Marines through Darwin, and cementing renewed military arrangements with the Philippines, the U.S. demonstrates to China that they are serious about countering Chinese movements. Complementing these moves is the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which has the potential to force China to play by American rules. A large part of China's motivation in asserting itself locally is to establish itself as the regional hegemon. If they can't write the rules on trade and labor, it will be much more difficult for them to develop an identity as the biggest kid on the block. This is a very long-term strategy, though, and requires smaller, intermediate steps to carry it through. One of these intermediate steps seems to have taken place very recently. Though the U.S. may have let the issue lie dormant for several years after backing down after the last encounter, it has no doubt learned its lesson and implemented a new strategy. After canceling a third FONOP that was supposed to pass within 12 nautical miles of Scarborough Shoal, the Obama administration was accused of dithering in the area and allowing the Chinese to seize the initiative once again. Quietly, though, there was more play. Though the FONOP was canceled, a much larger but lower profile operation was developing. Washington and naval leadership agreed to move a carrier strike group into the South China Sea and fly a flight of A-10 Warthogs, an airframe renowned for its toughness, over the islands. Additionally, neither naval leadership nor the White House broadcast their intentions to the wider public, but did inform the Chinese of what they were planning. This serious departure for past strategy surely caught the Chinese off guard, but it also gave them the ability to walk back without losing face in the public eye. Unlike a high-profile FONOP, which would surely catch the attention of Chinese state media, the flyover got little attention but demonstrated U.S. willingness to take a stand and accept some risk in preventing Chinese development of the shoal. For now, at least, the Chinese are deterred. So how will things proceed from here, and how should the incoming American administration deal with continued Chinese assertiveness? Well, for one, there doesn't seem to be too much chance for a permanent Chinese de-escalation. They have poured too much time and effort into assuming their current stance to simply give up. By the same token, the United States cannot afford to simply roll over and allow the Chinese a fait accompli. Because of this, there will almost certainly be further provocations to which the United States must respond. But to what extent should the U.S. put its neck out to protect the rule of law on the sea? On the one hand, allowing China to assert itself without protest was, would result in a ripple effect throughout the globe and cause allies to question America's commitment to the rule of law. On the other hand, control over the South China Sea is hardly a vital U.S. interest, much less an existential threat. The real objective for American policymakers should be to make Chinese actions as diplomatically costly as possible. Let's face it, if China is committed enough, they can construct as many island fortresses in the sea as they want, and there's nothing the U.S. can do about it short of an actual war. What American leadership and diplomats can do, however, is utilize soft power and seek to delegitimize Chinese actions as much as possible and draw the various regional powers closer together. This is easier said than done, though. Such a policy requires patience and fortitude. 
both of which are hard sells to the public. Lately, though, Chinese actions have played right into the American hand. The key is to ensure that China never wins the narrative battle. Since America resumed asserting itself in the region, the Chinese have tried using it as a justification for the increased military presence. Thankfully, it doesn't appear that too many are actually buying this particular narrative. What's more, it has been made excessively obvious to all involved that American actions are a direct result of the Chinese, not the other way around, as they would have people believe. This isn't to say that the U.S. should be entirely reactive either. A proactive diplomatic stance will absolutely be necessary if this dispute is ever to be satisfactorily resolved. Continued engagement with the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, and Indonesia, as well as with China itself, will play a crucial role in creating a situation that is acceptable to all involved. Because that is what the end game really should be for America's diplomats. It shouldn't be to totally emasculate the Chinese or remove them from the game entirely. It should be to make them into a partner in regional stability as opposed to an adversary. Too often it seems we approach international politics and the great struggle of nations as some zero-sum game when it is in fact not. Despite all of the rhetoric surrounding China lately and all the wargaming, the Chinese are still people with motivations and desires as human as our own. They are not too far gone down some rabbit hole of communism and autocracy. The Chinese, at least those who live in the big cities, are an extremely intelligent, cosmopolitan, and worldly people with more in common with the West today than ever before. Would we not be better off offering the carrot before the stick? I believe Abraham Lincoln said it best. Do I not destroy my enemies when I make them my friends? Indeed, that should be America's guiding principle in the region.